Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. On today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Christina Maslach, a distinguished emeritus professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and the leading expert on workplace burnout. Professor Maslach received her Bachelor of Arts, magna cum laude, from Harvard Radcliffe College, her PhD from Stanford University, and has been on the Berkeley faculty since. Her pioneering research identified and defined occupational burnout, as well as its predictors and measurement. Her work is the basis for the 2019 decision by the World Health Organization to include this condition as an occupational phenomenon with health consequences in the ICD-11, the International Classification of Diseases 11th Revision. Professor Maslach created the Maslach Burnout Inventory, the most widely used instrument for measuring workplace fatigue, and has written numerous articles and books, including The Truth About Burnout. One of her insights is that it is often the job itself, more than the individual's characteristics who works in that job, that's important for understanding why burnout occurs. While listening to this episode, I encourage you to not only think about your own engagement, or on the opposite end, burnout, but also think about your work environment and how you might do things differently to create a better, healthier, and improved workplace. First of all, I'd like to say congratulations to you. Um, I read that in January 2020 it was announced that you were honored with this year's National Mm -hmm. Academy of Sciences Award for Scientific Reviewing for your pioneering research on job burnout and worker well-being. And I can only imagine how that felt um, to have decades of research in this area and to be honored by something that actually goes back to the time of Lincoln um, as far as the National Academy of Sciences. Um, How was that for you? Oh, it was just an amazing thing. I mean, I I was just so stunned and shocked. I had no idea I had even been nominated. So it wasn't like something, you know, where you think, oh, there's many people competing and, you know, am I, I'm i going to be the one to be, you know, honored in some way. I didn't know about it. And so when I got the announcement, it was just like, wow, the National Academy of Sciences? I mean, you know, yes. and it, it just, it was just, you know, and it it was amazing because it was like, you know, the best birthday present and total surprise and everything. It just all rolled into one. And uh, to be honored for, you know, the way that I've been able to write and and talk about this in, in, you know, um, in the scientific world, you know, really just meant so much to me. Well, and I, and all the more so I'm delighted for you that it was a surprise to you that it it wasn't even expected. It just, wow. Um, And to have, yeah. And to have that, Decades of research and um, and teaching validated. Um, what what a treat! I I don't even know you, and I'm so excited for you that you received that. So <laughs> so congratulations, Dr. Maslak. You are literally famous in the psychology world as a pioneering researcher on occupational burnout. How exactly did you find your way to that field of study? Ah. Interesting question because um, I didn't even know that such a term existed or such a set of issues existed at all. Um, so it was something that I discovered uh, by chance. It was really, you know, serendipitous. Um, what and, you know, and if I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory on that, and that was that I had, you know, I've got my PhD. I had been hired at uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, going to start off and, you know, do your research. And when you're a new assistant professor, you need to start an area of work that you are going to be eventually evaluated on after, you know, six, seven years uh, to see if your position will become a permanent one. You get tenure. Um, and so uh, I was looking to, okay, whatever I'm going to do, I had, been, I had been trained as an experimental social psychologist in the laboratory, 
Uh, I had been doing work on emotion and how people understand what it is they are feeling and um, all kinds of interesting issues. And so when I got to Berkeley, I thought, ah, well, I will start an, a new line of research following up from my earlier stuff. But I didn't have a lab yet. Uh, and they had, you know, they said, well, we'll get to it, you know, but it, it wasn't a place for me to do that research. So I thought, well, hmm, okay, they're going to work on getting me my lab space. But uh, in the meantime, maybe I sh- what I should do is go out and talk to some people um, who I think might be facing certain kinds of questions about their emotional feelings, like when they're in the midst of a really challenging, you know, or emergency kind of situation, and how do you handle all of this? Um, so I had a, you know, list of questions and ideas and theories and so forth that were relevant. And I thought, I just, I'll, I'll interview, you know, real people who are on the ground, you know, with these things, and I'd get some more insight, and eventually I'd take these hypotheses into the laboratory and do my research. And what I found out in the interviews, and I started, in, you know, interviewing people like in healthcare, in the emergency room, I was interviewing uh, police officers, I was interviewing social workers, I was interviewing, t- I mean, there was just all kinds of people. And I talked to one, and someone would say, oh, you really got to talk to him with this other person, my friend, she's da-da-da-da. Um, and they would answer my questions, but then they would say, uh, could we tell you a little bit more, some other things about what's, you know, happening? I'd be, you know, et cetera. Is this his confidential interview, right? And I'd say, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so they would start telling me these other things about what their work was like and what they were going through and the challenges they were facing. And, um, after a while, I realized this was the really important stuff for them because some people would get angry and upset while they talked about these things. Some people would cry. Some people would, I mean, you know, it was mm-hmm. like, wow, we got a, a big problem here. You know, it's kind of like it's related, but it's a little different than what it, where I started, so tell me more. Um, and more and more people kept telling me about this. And after a while, I noticed there was a kind of a rhythm, a kind of a pattern that was coming out in a lot of these things. Um, so that was the thing that I sort of literally stubbed my toe on, you know, uh, was to hear that something, some other storylines, some other kinds of experiences, some other kinds of interesting questions were coming up from these interviews. It's not where I started, but it, it, it was clear that it was important. And then the ser- second serendipitous thing was that um, I was at a, a dinner uh, for new faculty at Berkeley. And so, you know, you're sitting at tables with people and you're meeting people and sitting next to somebody and, you know, who are you and, and what are you doing? Da, da, da. And I was talking to a woman who was in the law school. Um, and so she asked me about uh, what I was doing and I mentioned, oh, I just had these interesting interviews today and let the, you know, tell them. She said, oh my God. I don't know. What do they call it? But we call it burnout. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, and she worked in, she had worked in Poverty Law Center, a legal services center, mm-hmm. um, and she, it became my next interview, you know, to find out what was going on. One of the things that strikes me about that story is this was always there. It's not like it didn't exist, and yet it right. kind of did come into existence once you named it and once you started studying it. And I know that you've done a ton of research about that. And in fact, you even have a tool that carries your name, the MBI, the Maslach Burnout Inventory. But I find that fascinating that here was this thing that we all kind of knew about or many people knew about. um, And yet it was waiting for you to say, what is this and to further define it? Um, So can you tell us how you developed that tool in order to investigate and define what this burnout is? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a a good question. Um, Because basically at that point, what I had done was um, heard from a lot of people in these interviews. And one of the things that sort of became clear is that we needed to develop some kind of a way of capturing what is essentially that shared storyline that people were were talking about as burnout. So what we did was to take a lot of the uh, statements that would keep popping up in the interviews and put them in sort of a standard format of a, of a, of a statement rather than a question or a comment or something like that and ask people, to what extent do you feel 
this thing, you know, like, you know, I feel emotionally stressed at the beginning of the day or something like that. And uh, so we had, rather than a yes, no, agree, disagree, we had a frequency scale, which really said, how often does this occur? Um, and it can range from never or, you know, very rarely all the way to every day. That made it different from other sorts of measures, which are more like opinions. This was really saying, tell us what your experience is like in terms of how often this is the kind of thing you deal with. Um, and then what we did is we just made lots and lots and lots of these items and statements. And we went out and found all kinds of groups of people who were willing to fill out the form, answer all of these statements, um, give us some other information about where they worked and their age and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, and then we would do data analyses to try and figure out which of those items seem to be working well. There's a whole set of um, psychometric data analyses that, you know, principles that you have to follow there to sort of be able to weed out the better items or the good items, the ones that are clearly working, you know, across people and others that aren't. Um, and then you prune down the list and then you do it again with another, you know, several more hundred people, you know, um, and keep doing that until you get down to a set of items that seems to be reliable um, that every time you use it, it's, it's working the same kind of way and that they're valid. You have to collect all kinds of other information that says, yes, people who say, I feel this way frequently are showing these other kinds of problems or challenges in their work life. And so we would ask them about that work life. We would ask their, they were, if they had a spouse or partner, we would interview the spouse partner. If they had clients, we would ask, you know, or patients, we would ask them or managers. So you get information from other people who know this individual who filled out the form, and you use that data to help validate that they, that um, if people are actually feeling this way, they actually behave in other ways that other people can observe and, and say, yes, you know, um, they're having trouble. <laughs> they're having problems. So that's, we just kept doing that for several years, and then um, we, in this case, is the graduate student, Susan Jackson, who was working with me at this point, she is now a distinguished professor herself at Rutgers. Um, uh, but at any rate, we eventually got down to um, what turned out to be the MBI. And we thought it would, you know, because we were hearing this pattern, this, this, this story, we thought we would get a single scale, you know, where all the items cluster together and they work together and they capture burnout. And no matter what happened, it always kept breaking apart into three interrelated dimensions. It was like it was saying, well, it's not just one thing. It's actually something that has three components that are related, but, you know, they're also a little different. And, again, that's what makes uh, this measure somewhat unique because it's not a yes, no, you're depressed or anxious or not. Um, it's really saying what kind of pattern are you showing in terms of the stress response of exhaustion in terms of the uh, interpersonal dimension of cynicism and negative, you know, thing about the work and the job and the people there, and to what extent are you experiencing the uh, negative self-evaluation uh, that could lead later to depression and anxiety and other problems. So it's those really three that we found um, are important. Uh, and now we, we are able to use those scores to identify at least five, possibly more different profiles, of which one is really the extreme burnout, but the others are not. There's something else. They're in either engagement with work or they're being a little overextended, but they're not burned out. So we're able to um, uh, assess in research studies, you know, where people are in all of this and then learn from that what's happening, what seem to be the important causal factors, what are the important outcomes, if, you know, of all of this. Um, so it was really translating all of what people were telling us into a standardized measure that seems to capture well uh, what that what that shared experience was. So we talked about how people kind of self-identified as feeling burned out in the beginning, and I think that a lot of people mm -hmm. still do that and talk about feeling exhausted. Mm -hmm. But you really talked about bringing in. Um, other components, cynicism, and then that right. that negative self evaluation. Um, it reminds me of a um, big team meeting I was at in an organization where they were trying to um, 
really get people to see the need for change. And they talked about cynics and how maybe it was time for the cynics to go, um, to leave the organization because we were on this new path. And one brave soul raised his hand, stood up and said, we didn't hire cynics. And I thought it was such a wonderful example of how tempting it is to see the individual in the system as the problem, Mm -hmm. instead of understanding how the system itself will sometimes create cynics. And I know that that's been part of your research as well. Um, And and trying to shift the blame or the acknowledgement or the responsibility. Um, How did that shift happen for you? Because you really started at that individual level, as far as I could tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting um, because, yeah, I was starting, you know, with, with individuals. But when you listen, and you know, to their stories in more depth, and that's what the interview is, is helpful for. I mean, you're, uh, it's a smaller sample, obviously, but you're getting a, a richer picture. And they were able to talk about how it was when they started and what it's like now or what has happened to me or... What are the things that have just, you know, not been what I thought was going to happen in this kind of work? Uh, or, you know, so there was often this story, really, of starting out well. I mean, nobody starts out burned out, really, you know, just like they don't start out being cynical. Um, they often go into a lot of these jobs because they really believe in something. They're going to help people be healthy. They're going to educate. They're going to make a difference, you know, in a positive way. And uh, in some cases, you know, some of them were just with, had been identified by other people to me as, oh, my God, the best teacher in the world. Everybody wants their kids to be in her class and, you know, all this kind of thing. And then for her to burn out to the point where she just had to quit and leave, um, you know, it's kind of like, what happened here? So I think always I was hearing that there is a context, there is a you know, they're not in isolation. They're, it, it's not just about you know, their personal issues or problems. It's, it's really about what is happening to the work that is either getting in the way or taking them, making it difficult to actually achieve what it is you're supposed to be doing. And, um, so I think I was, uh, hearing that always from the beginning in the interviews. The measure didn't capture that in the sense of asking them about it, but the other research would be, yes, um, we would ask people about their work environment. We would observe them. We would, you know, get other kinds of measures, and we would find out how they scored on the on the burnout inventory. And that began to tell us a lot uh, of what are the things, you know, in that surrounding context, whatever kind of job it is, whatever kind of workplace it is, that seems to be a risk factor for developing burnout. And then, you know, the the consequences of that in terms of poor performance and poor health and absenteeism and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, So the measure was only capturing the individual experience, but we were then using um, that information from a lot of people to then look at and what do they have in common in terms of uh, job factors in the workplace or uh, consequences or, you know, what is their working relationship between them and their manager or supervisor, you know, or colleague or whatever. Uh, and that's when we began to sort of really find that more of the weight is being captured by uh, what's going on in that context than what it is about the individual in terms of personality or, you know, history and, you know, all, all individual kind of things. It's not to say that's not a factor. It is. But, you know, if, if, if um, I mean, people often ask me, well, is it the person or is it the job? And the answer and is yes, right? It's really, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the, the, it's the wrong question because it frames it as an either or. Right. You know, and that happens a lot. You know, it's not like it could be shared or it could be both or, you know, so it's the person and the job. And once you start looking at that and looking at the kind of the fit or mismatch or imbalance or, you know, whatever kind of word we try and use there between people and whatever that working context is, then you begin to see where some of the pain points are. 
and um, and those are you know uh, identify and we've identified at least six of those areas uh, between you know a fit between or misfit between people and, and the workplace and there may well be more than that but um, but they give you a starting place to say what's going wrong but also what could go right I mean how do you fix that how do you change that so that the fit and you could be doing stuff on the person side as well as on the job side. But the idea is how do you make it work better than the way it's doing now? Because the costs are actually becoming too high. Yes. And I can only imagine with your your lens as you're thinking about how people and companies are now functioning in this different setting of COVID-19. Uh, the pandemic mm. has disrupted the world. It's disrupted the work world um, in a really yeah. dramatic way. Um, everyone is finding new ways of working, working from home, going to work at the same time. The stresses are different. Mm -hmm. The connections are yeah. different. Um, how? What are you thinking about as far as um, prevention of burnout and burnout in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, it's a. <laughs> I wish I had a terrific answer for you on that one. I mean, we're still learning about it. I mean, you know, if you think about it, you and I first talked by you know a couple of weeks ago, and the world is different now than it was then. Yeah, you know, with regard to COVID and what's happening. So it's like it's a moving target and a, a moving environment, and you know, we're not in any great position to predict on some of these things. So I'll do the best I can with that. Uh, let me just say a few things. One is that uh, what I and many other people have been who have been doing work on occupational health and you know these kinds of kinds of topics and stuff like that have been arguing for some time now, not you know even before COVID, is that we really need to be thinking about healthy workplaces, mm -hmm. and healthy workplaces uh, are not simply oh, we have healthy, you know, food in the vending machines or, you know, we'll, we'll have a stairmaster in the basement for people to, you know, work on or something like that. But it's really an environment that helps people thrive and, and grow and do well and not be super stressed to the point of not being able to function well. So um, it's been a message that's been out there for a while, but it's, um, I have to say it's been a challenging one to sort of get across. Because, again, it tends to still focus on the person end of it. What do you do to the person? Mm -hmm. um, and what we've been saying is you have to think of as much as uh, the person. You have to think about not only the physical environment, you know, where they sit or stand and, you know, their machines or whatever, you know, tools they're using or something, but also what are the social and psychological things that take place in the workplace that help people do well and get motivated and, do their best and, you know, et cetera, feel recognized and rewarded. Uh, so that message is now coming home to a lot of people in a lot of places in ways that it had never been before. Because quite honestly, we cannot have a healthy economy if we don't have a healthy workplace. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't put people, you know, um, crowd them all in together. You can't uh, not have, you know, safe places for them to do things. All of that stuff has really changed the notion of of what the workplace has to be, any kind of work environment. Um, and it doesn't, it could be at home, it could be whatever, but, you know, what are going to be healthy, safe places for people to do the kind of work that they want to do, that they're hoping to accomplish, that they get paid for, that keeps them, you know, supports them, in the, you know, in their lifestyle, et cetera. So, so this is a chance, actually, to really think out of the box and uh, come up with some better ideas about how we think of the environments in which people, you know, carry out their lives, and in this case, their work lives. I've been moderating conversations with groups of chief human resource officers throughout the country, and I'm really struck mm -hmm. by their empathy of what their employees are going through, either with work-from-home stress or returning-to-work stress, um, dealing with child care, mm -hmm. sometimes um, vulnerable populations mm -hmm. like elder care. A lot of them report right. that productivity is actually 
much higher than normal. And they're, they're surprised about this and they actually worry about it being sustainable. Uh, they say that people went from this being a three-month sprint, I can do this, to a marathon. And people aren't sure that their employees can keep that up. They're, they're worried about them. And it's, yeah. it's lovely to see that amount of empathy in there. Um, the other thing that I keep hearing is just what you alluded to in your last few sentences, which is, this is a crisis. And um, what's the saying? Never let a good crisis go to waste. And people really yeah. are applying um, creativity to what is new problems that they've never seen before. And people are stepping up mm-hmm. in innovative ways in order to get to those those needs that people have. And so would right. you just take a moment to, to really elucidate what you've identified that we need to be thinking about as we are kind of creating that workspace and workforce of the future of COVID? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, it's a lot. <laughs> Let's try. Um, uh, in terms of some of the key areas that we've seen, I mean, everybody, of course, thinks of workload, and you've alluded to that already. Um, but we need to think about doing work differently, that we can change how much is being asked of people and who's doing what and what things are, it turns out, really not necessary, uh, but take up a lot of people's time having to fill in, you know, all of the forms that we'll never see the light of day again and, you know, whatever. So to really talk with, you know, get people to rethink how we're, what are, you know, what are the key things we need to be doing? How, who could do them? Um, how do we, work collaboratively as teams or, you know, hand off on these things when we're not in the same building or, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, so making, you know, how do you change the workload so it's more sustainable? Um, the marathon you keep talking about is one of the things that we see um, as a very high predictor of burnout. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just that people are doing it more now, during the crisis, they were doing it more before Mm -hmm. COVID came along because that's become more and more of the culture, the hustle culture, the, if you're not working, you're not, you know, 150%, you're not working enough. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, you're going to have to, the mantra that is driving a lot of people crazy before then is you have to do more with less. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, People, I mean, it's become, this is the norm. This is what you have to do. You can't say no. You can't say, I can't do it, whatever. You just have to keep stretching into the marathon. There's this obsession with productivity, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's but, it, but I mean, it, it sort of robs people of their humanity. I mean, it's just like, how much can you churn out? People become um, widgets. And, yeah, yeah. And as I say, there are a lot of things that get added in that people didn't want or don't think is necessary or important, and that gets to a second area that we see, and that is the extent to which you have some sense of control or autonomy, or you can make some changes, you can use discretion, you have some choice. Uh, you know, the fact that, that uh, medical doctors, for example, are, have been going crazy for several years now with electronic medical records not because there's not a good idea of putting, you know, it, that kind of data in, in place, but because it ta- eats up hours and hours where they have to do stuff that they didn't have to do before and it's really not necessary to do it. The records well. Somebody else made those decisions. Somebody else designed those things. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just been nightmarish. Um, so, you know, it's it's a workload, but it's also connected with the extent to which you have some choice of doing the important stuff and not the other stuff that's really less less so. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who are being forced into things have no control. Um, they can't say no. They, you know, the only thing you can do is more of it. Uh, and if you're worried that, you know, and I think what will drive a lot of what you're talking about, right, during the crisis is that, I don't want to be the one that's let go. I don't want to be the one that's mm-hmm. fired or furloughed. And so, you know, what can I do to, you know, keep me in the good graces? Well, I just have to double up and, you know, do more and do more, et cetera. Because there's a real fear and worry. And, you know, how many millions of us are unemployed right now? I right. mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know. 
Yeah. It's not an unreasonable kind of thing. So it's it's not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, it's um it's fear based. It's having mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's and it has consequences of all kinds. Um the harder you're working, the more time you're spending at work, the less time you're spending with your family, with your friends, with whatever in whatever form you can. Um you're not getting enough time for sleep, you're not getting enough time, you know, to do all kinds of other things in your life, which you need to pay attention to, especially now. There's another one that comes up um, in terms of COVID that I've heard a lot is is really the loneliness as people are isolated. And I think that that mm-hmm. is related to one of those core needs um, that you call out, which is mm-hmm. belongingness. Um, and yeah. and yeah. how do we... How do we go from loneliness to belongingness in this kind of a work yeah. culture? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. Um, I mean, what we find and what we were finding even before COVID is that that whole area of social connection, belongingness, being part of a larger community, and it occurs at many different levels. It's the people you work with, the people you work for, you know, the neighbors, your family. I mean, social relationships and... Um, psychologically we know that's one of the most important things in anybody's life to have a good life is to have those social connections and be a part of that and you know and so forth so so loneliness isolation um is is always a a worrisome sign uh you know in terms of of people's well-being so you know the challenge with covid is that you may have lost a lot of the connections. You don't see people on a regular basis. You can't get together with them. Or if you do, you, you know, you have to be distanced. You have to be masked. And, and um, you know, how does that work out? Well, for some people, they've found ways to do that. They'll, um, you know, neighbors singing to each other and, and talking across the street and uh, sort of planning some other fun things to do that, the you know, kids can that, you know, that's still safe. Um the other thing is that a lot of this is going virtual online, uh, not always, but in some cases. Um, and there, I think it's really thinking about how do we take advantage of that to make that more, quote, social and socially connected. Um, so, for example, I have heard from people who have said, okay, I'm now at home, working at home, and I'm now, you know, I'm an attorney in this organization, and I now have to interview clients from home on, you know, mm-hmm. on Zoom. Um, and it's working better than it did before. You know, what happened kind of thing. And do you think it's because we're in more casual clothes or, you know, and it's an interesting question about what have, what has, what have you done differently, not maybe consciously, but how you treat people when you're talking on Zoom or you're seeing them in their home and now they're more human and you're more human to them. There really is, I think, a different level of authenticity that people are bringing to their virtual interactions. Um, sure. That, that They're pe- not always aware of it. Yes. But you know what I'm saying? It's yes. Kind of, you know, but it's kind of like, well, think about what would you do or how, you know, could you do this differently, even if you were back in the office? I was so excited when we finally got video and got the okay to do video with all of our meetings. I just missed faces so much. And so even for yeah, big meetings, yeah. I would I would turn on my camera and greet people. And instantly people would respond and say, oh, you're on camera. I'll be on camera, too. I'm I'm really not made up to be yeah. on camera. But you know what? It mattered less <laughs> to us the image that we were projecting yeah. on camera than it was that we could actually see each other's faces. And that meant something. Right. And they and they and they can see us and we're you know, we're all there, you know, in, in, in some sense. I mean, there's. Um, it's almost as though <laughs> you're going behind the facade, you know, but what is that thing behind the curtain? You yes. know, sort of thing. It's, it's just, you know, the normal everyday, you know, kind of, of, uh, person or the fact that you're in your home environment may make you a little bit more, um, casual, familiar, you know. Yeah. Kind of a come as you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's like, how do you, I mean, one of the things that we've always seen in terms of something positive, you know, to deal or help with deal with burnout is to find little ways, um, to bring a little bit more humor, positive, joy, you know, fun, whatever into the, into the environment, work environment. 
Um, and that can take so many different kind of forms, um, you know, uh, in terms of, of how we get together or we have special kind of jokes or themes that, you know, we do or, um, uh, you know, how do we, how do we celebrate little wins, you know, as opposed to big losses or something like that. Um, and so here, try, again, trying to find out what are some things that would, that people would kind of resonate to is let's leave a little time for this. I mean, you know, if you have people on Zoom for hours and hours and hours, and you know, I mean, that's just, after a while, that's going to be way too much. Um, so they need to come and go, but also use some of that time for just bonding and talking and sharing something. Um, um, I'll give you a different example that happened pre-COVID, but it obviously can also happen now. Um, and that was um, a healthcare team, uh, you know, and they usually always in the beginning of the day, beginning of the shift, you know, you're all getting together, the different people who are working and finding out, okay, what's our cases, who's going to handle what, you know, da-da-da-da, mm-hmm. and work that all out. So it's the huddle, you know, that, that is done um, before they actually start the day's, you know, uh, work, surgery, you know, seeing patients, whatever it happens to be. Um, and there was one group that said, you know, we started, we, we had an instance where somebody said in the huddle, uh, you know, I've got a sick child, really sick. I haven't been able to get somebody to help take care of him at home. And, you know, would it be okay if I left a little earlier because my neighbor can only say, you know, da 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 and people say, oh, well, yeah, sure, okay, we can, you know, down, make this change, da-da-da-da. And then they realize it's not a one-time occurrence. It could happen with other people. And so there was, you know, they started saying, well, it was okay to sort of say how things are going. Different people felt encouraged to speak up rather than always being quiet and only the doctor boss was the only one who talked. After a while, people felt like they could share a little bit of, you know, every once in a while, not a lot, but fabulous film you really ought to see that as a that you know kind of thing i think that this experience has been unifying in that way in that we're all going through this and there isn't a one of us that at some time or another isn't anxious overwhelmed um for even you know michelle obama uh, to say oh I, you know I, I think i've got i've had some mild depression with everything going on there's a new conversation happening about our humanness and how we are showing up with our whole selves in this space. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing, uh, you know, that is important in that is it's not just about us individually. It's about us socially and collectively and collaboratively and and having, as you said, sort of more empathy, more understanding, realize, mm-hmm. yeah, me too, and, um, you know, going through that, but hopefully also extending that people are more willing to reach out and help. And you know what? I just found that if I do this with my kid, they're actually, you know, able to sort of just focus on, you know, this kind of game and stuff and not have to be, you know, clinging on me all the time. You might try, you know, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, you're just, it may not be the best advice in the world, but it's like willing to share and say, how about this? Or, how about if we take turns yep. doing X, you know, um, you know, I can do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you do it, you know, it, you know, some sort of way in which we, not just I, but we, you know, figure out how we can work together in ways that actually support each other better, you know, solve some of the annoying pebbles in our shoe problems that we have, um, you know, um, make it, make it a little, you know more positive in, in, in some kinds of ways. And while I see that we are doing a better job of that, I, I still think that a lot of us think that the problem and then the answer has to come from ourselves, from me, um, that I need to work on my resilience, I need to do these different things and I'm, I'm really hoping that as people listen um, and think about that from this conversation, that they realize that this is bigger than the individual. And, and it really is sometimes a systemic problem that has to be called out. Now, now calling something out can be challenging, um, even when you do know it needs to be done, or you can even identify that it's there. And 
I'm wondering if there are lessons that you might be able to share from your nonprofit. I believe you have something called the Heroic Imagination Project. That's my husband, yeah. Ah, yeah. okay. Um, yeah. So he, yeah, he has done that where um, what he's done, he and others have been developing all kinds of sort of lessons. It's like taking what we've learned from, you know, psychology and the social sciences and translate them into what is it you can do to essentially become better able to respond to others and be helpful and be heroic in the sense of, you know, coming to the aid of somebody who needs it. What What is the advice for the individual who who identifies as burned out, who reaches out to others in their workspace that are also saying, I can't keep doing this. How is it that that individual raises this issue in a way that the leadership of the company can shift from individual blame or responsibility to say, we are in this together? Do you have any advice for people? Yeah, that's that's a hard one. I mean, in the sense that it, at some level it looks like, well, you know, that's an obvious thing we should all be doing, you know. And so, what? How hard could that be? Well, it turns out it's been really hard. Yes. And I think part of the problem has been that people are, you know, if they're if you're having any kind of problems, doesn't matter what it is, and burnout or some other kinds of issues, you're worried that um, that if you reveal it in some way or talk about it or whatever you will be judged as being weak, as being less good than really good, as, you know, I mean, it's showing your bad side, and it's important not to do that. So you, um, that really works against sharing and finding out, actually, there's a lot of people who feel exactly the same way mm-hmm. as you, rather than you're the only one. So it's this situation which we call pluralistic ignorance, which is... Um, where we all put out our, you know, put our best foot forward, put our best face on, you know, make sure, you know, everybody thinks I'm doing okay, I'm fine, you know, I can handle it, da 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 And inside I'm thinking, oh, God, if they only knew they wouldn't like me or they, you know, I wouldn't have this job or something like that. But if everybody puts that face on and has that other thing hidden inside, then we are all creating ignorance for each other because we're all leading other people to believe that everyone else is fine and I'm the only one who is not. Um, and um, that's been one of the things of sharing the data about burnout is how many people have written in or said something like, I, I thought I was the only person. Now, oh, wait, other people, you know, so does it normalize it or at least say it's, it's, it's worthy of discussion? So how to get over that hump, you know, where people feel safe and right now they often don't feel safe, not not being physically safe, but not being psychologically safe. You know, I'll get bullied, I'll get teased, I'll get, you know, demoted, I'll get fired, I'll get, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, so how to develop working relationships that sort of strengthen the, we can trust each other, you know, we can actually talk about some of these things. And it may take some earlier steps of, can we focus on a, a problem that we all have that we would like to make better? Um, and one of the things that I have found, I mean, and that cuddle huddle is, is, as it turns out, one example of that is that there are things people can do on their own without having to go up to the boss, without having to ask for tons of money or, you know, whatever, and just say, we could do it a little differently here. How about, you know, and then sort of come up with their own, I mean, it's literally taking not a huge problem, but maybe a, a smaller one, a low-hanging fruit kind of one, and say, how could we do this differently so it wouldn't be such an annoyance for everybody? How could we, you know, um, or, you know, if we had our top five things, what, what would what would we want to focus on and, and spend some time on? And if there's a way to have a group or, you know, a team or a two or a three or whatever, people kind of beginning to work together in a different way that's not focusing on who to blame, you know, or who's the weak one or who's the whatever, but how could we do something that would make a difference? That's a first step in beginning to change your perception of each other and your willingness to then, you know, go the next step and talk about, you know, what some things might not be going well, but what could we do? Um, so that kind of 
collaboration, you know, um, <laughs> I think, um, in, in many, many different, you know, little ways, uh, is often a, an important first step to, to begin to, you know, sort of rebuild that kind of community and, and, uh, and so forth. And what I hear in that is it's, it's all of those kind of core things coming together in an actionable way. Um, you talked about autonomy, belongingness, competence, um, positive emotions, the psychological safety, meaning, all of those are actually embodied in a community activity together, which then, of course, um, takes people to the next level of engagement, which I think is the word that is the opposite of burnout. Is that true? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because, yes, we did come up with engagement when we started looking at the profile where, you know, there really aren't high signs, I mean, the burnout, and people are saying, no, this doesn't happen very often, maybe occasionally, but no, not, you know, really not. And we were seeing a very different profile, and we called it engagement. However, engagement has been used by many people and organizations in different ways to have other meanings. So it's, a, you know, yeah. ah, okay. <laughs> but we, we see it as a positive, you know, um, uh, kind of thing. And I, I think one of the things I would I would put in there is that what we have found is that when people are able, you know, to actually work together on something um, that actually makes a difference, and, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, we could... <laughs> God, why are we beating ourselves up over here? We could be doing it this way, you know, and doing that. It builds a sense not only of sort of optimism, but of hope. Mm -hmm. If we could do that, maybe we could do something about this over here. Or maybe, you know, so there's this sense of there's, there's some good possibilities. We just have to sort of find them. How can we begin to take steps along the way and, and not be hobbled by huge expectations like, we are going to redesign healthcare for the 21st century, you know, kind of thing, and it'll take us lots of money and time. No. You know, what are the, the little things that would make what we're doing, a, you know, more effective, more pleasurable in the sense that we're, we're feeling good about what we're accomplishing, um, you know, motivates us to stick it out and do what we can even during tough times. I mean, that's, that's what you, that, that kind of hope, that kind of willingness to, you know, explore and discover some other possibilities um, is really what keeps people going <laughs> yes. a lot. Um, and and it's, it's something where the more you can practice that, <laughs> you know, um, the better it is, you know, like riding a bike, you know, in some sense. Um, you got to keep at it. And, um, uh, and then, you know, just to go back to the heroic imagination thing, one of the key points about that is that to be somebody who is, more willing to step up when some good action is needed is somebody whose eyes are out for other people and always scanning what's happening. Who needs help walking across the street? Oh my gosh, there's a kid over there getting bullets. Who can I get together to sort of say, Hey, come on guys, knock it off. Or, you know, but you're, you know, you're being more sociocentric, more concerned about others, watching others, learning about others. How do you, you know, they do, homework lessons, like how do you make somebody feel a little better every day by a little comment you make or a compliment or, you know, uh, some little thing. What I love about that is it sounds like it's a skill. It's not an attribute, but this is actually something mm -hmm. that people can learn and then become. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's true. I mean, getting, you know, giving compliments, you know, to somebody, you know, figuring out something you can say that will actually make somebody feel better. Um, and, uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be some outrageous kind of thing, doesn't have to be some huge thing, but just some little thing, you know. Uh, I thought that was such a great idea you brought up over lunch, you know, I hadn't really thought about, you know, um, or, you know, thanks for coming and, and sort of saving my butt on this one because it, it really made a difference or... You know, I don't know. I mean, it's just a, there's just different ways in which, you know, a little bit of that kind of social recognition, social kindness, you know, is building little bit by little bit those, you know, more of those bonds, more of those trust, more of that, you know, whatever. And it's reciprocal. I mean, you know, in other words, you really want it to be that 
everybody does it for each other, you know, and, uh, and it's not mandated and it's not coming down from on high, you know, thou shalt, you know, rah, you know, so. But that's really how community yeah. is made, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been um, just a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed learning from you and hearing from you and learning about your work. Thank you so much again for your time. I um, think this will absolutely be valuable to um, the audience, to our listeners and beyond. And um, I'm just smiling right now thinking about how is it I can actually um, find that bright spot um, that I can reach out to an acquaintance or a friend and share that um, in order to um, really, again, help with the, the prevention side um, in the workspace um, of, of the burnout. So, so thank you so much. Any last words that you want to have? Well, I would just wish for everybody, you know, in these times to realize that this is a, a wonderful opportunity um, to do things differently in terms of who you meet, what you do, how you get together and, and create things. Um, and uh, we don't want to waste that opportunity uh, to find those bright spots, to find those new ways, to find the, the next steps, you know, that will take us, um, you know, through the crises we're going through and hopefully to a, a better world in the future. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Views podcast with me, Deb Friesen. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation, and we'll share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.